throws a pass, touchdown San Francisco. Takes it in, touchdown. That's the extra threat that Steve Young provides. Turning the corner, fires downfield, caught, touchdown. Only Mahomes. One of my favorite positions in sports is the quarterback. Now, I know football's a team sport, but I view the quarterback as the field general. And the great ones, they have all the athletic qualifications, speed, agility, arm strength, and accuracy. But they also know how to motivate, inspire, lead, and make others believe. The special ones have this calmness, a sixth sense, that they combine to adjust to the different circumstances they're presented. Clock management, changing defenses, changing weather, turnovers, or even injury. And this leadership capability and intellectual and emotional IQ often extend off the field, even after their playing days are over. One of the best examples is my guest today. He's a Canadian kid with a family pedigree of athleticism and entrepreneurship who made it to the NFL. He played for five years. He started as a quarterback. He's only the second Canadian to do that and has since parlayed what he learned on and off the field into a successful and diversified career in broadcasting. A Canadian with that all-American look. Gator fans love him. He is our dreamboat. He is talented, friendly, a gentleman. Some will know him from his college days as the quarterback of the Florida Gators, others for his time with the New York Giants and the San Francisco 49ers, while others will know him as a sports broadcaster on ESPN, one of the first Bachelors, and today he's the host of one of the most exciting franchises on television, The Bachelor. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. His name is Jesse James Palmer, and his story matters to you because he understands the importance of moving forward through preparation, presentation, and diversification. Jesse Palmer, it's great to talk to you. It's great seeing you again. You know, the story I, I want to share with the listeners is when I first met you, I was cast as a judge on this reality show called Recipe to Riches. Great premise. Home chef can become a supermarket hero. And I had two other judges. Dana McCauley was there for her food expertise and Laura Calder, a celebrity chef. And, and you walk in and you immediately brought a sense of professionalism and calmness to the set. You brought the best out of everybody. And it wasn't just, you know, you obviously had the looks and the experience, but you just had this presence. And I just want to thank you for it because it really, I think, elevated the quality of the overall show. And part of the chord that I want to play during this episode is how important it is to have leadership as part of any endeavor. Uh, well, I was faking it very well then because that was the first time I'd ever been on a show that didn't have anything to do with football. But I think, I think, I really believe in the environment that you're in. And I think the fact that it was you and it was Dana and it was people that I just really was drawn to and interested in. I, I wish we could have filmed a lot of the conversations we were having off camera and some of the storytelling and the, and the movie quotes and all the things that we were doing. You guys were such a great group to be around. I miss that show so much because that was some of the most fun I've ever had uh, working on a show before. I knew about your dad in terms of being an accomplished athlete, but I had no idea that your mother was such a successful entrepreneur. So what was family like having kind of the testosterone with the entrepreneurship all woven together in the Palmer dinner table? I'm super lucky because I had two amazing role models growing up in my dad and my mom for a lot of different reasons. Um, the, the thing I think I'm most grateful for, obviously outside of the love that I was given and my brothers were given growing up and the examples we were given, it was just that my parents 
parents always, and for us as, as kids, they just fostered uh, our dreams and our goals and ambitions and made us believe that anything was attainable and anything was doable if you worked really, really hard and you dedicated yourself to it and you wanted it bad enough. My dad, having been a professional football player, was sort of this iconic figure that I grew up looking at, wanting to be like. And I remember him taking me to Ottawa Rough Riders football games back when J.C. Watts was the quarterback at the old Lansdowne Park, and they were terrible. But, you know, we would go to these games, and, and he just saw how passionate I was about football, and he wanted to do anything, you know, to help me succeed and achieve that. He never told me it wasn't it wasn't attainable, it wasn't possible. He, he helped instill in me the confidence to go out and do that. My mom was this incredible entrepreneur, businesswoman. Uh, she was a former model and she was running a successful modeling agency in Ottawa. And from her, I got hard work, discipline, and the structure. I think that's the biggest thing my mom gave me. I remember it was, you know, coming home from school. And of course, the first thing I ever wanted to do was go out and throw the football around. But it was do your homework first and just kind of understanding how to structure all the work that needed to be done to go into achieving what I wanted to. So I was I was very, very lucky to have those examples growing up as a kid, no doubt. And your brothers. I mean, talk about the siblings in the, the Palmer family. Billy's my, my younger brother, so I'm the oldest and the shortest. My, my brother Billy is two years younger. He was sort of the goofy rebel kid. He absolutely hated football because he saw that my dad played football and then I love football. So Billy had to be completely polar opposite. Billy was super creative in drama school. He was acting. He was a DJ part time in his in his bedroom and he was getting in trouble all the time. And the irony is years later, he ended up actually going to Notre Dame on a football scholarship and then playing professionally for the Washington Redskins. And then Christian is 11 years younger than me. He's like 6'6", strikingly handsome, looks like Henry Cavill. He grew up in this house where it was it was football, football, football all the time. And so he, Christian, was, was able to sort of forge his own path. Uh, he's now married. He lives in Newport Beach, California. He's doing exceptionally well in commercial real estate. There was a lot of testosterone in the house, which is why all of our pets were always female. <laughs> I feel for your mom. I should actually have your mom on the show and not you. <laughs> you should. Yeah, it'd be therapeutic. Yeah. So you play high school football in Ottawa, but you do something that few Canadian kids is you get a full ride scholarship to probably one of the epicenters of college football in the States, University of Florida. How did that come about beyond talent? I mean, how did they even know you existed? You know, it was a time when we had to be really proactive with respect to our recruitment. It, it was not passive recruiting. Today, you can just put your, your highlight tape on social media and or on YouTube and it blows up and it goes out and it gets followers and it gets retweeted and then schools all around the country find out and hear about you. Um, growing up in Nepean, Ontario is really, really hard to sort of get the message out. So um, it took a lot of time. It took a lot of, you know, we had to get people to film our games. We had to get the games dubbed and edited. Um, I remember, you know, sending out these VHS quality tapes, like the quality of the film is just so grainy and awful. But we had to decide who who was going to get the tapes? You know, where were we going to try to go to school? What was the bar? I mean, at what point were we wasting our time and wasting our money trying to send out and mail all these tapes to schools? Geography played a big role in it. I always thought I was going to end up playing, if, if I was lucky enough to play in college football, play somewhere geographically close to where I grew up. Um, but we took a look at 
that year, it was 1996, what were the best passing schools in college football? And the Florida Gators were one of the best. They had a quarterback, Danny Werfel, that was about to win the Heisman Trophy. Steve Spurrier was sort of this innovator that was changing the game, and he was throwing the ball all over the yard down in the swamp in Gainesville. And so we, we sent him a tape. I don't think we ever really expected to hear back from Coach Spurrier, but lo and behold, literally two weeks later, I got a phone call. And he was inviting me to come down to take an official visit in Gainesville. And he said he saw the tape. He loved what he saw. And really, the, the, the rest is history. Walking in, you know, you call it the swamp. But I mean, there's, what, 85,000 people cheering in that stadium. There must have been some imposter syndrome. I mean, yes, you were a talented football player in Ottawa. But this is, as you said, going down to a school renowned for its passing game. How did you come to terms with find the confidence to go there and say, you know, I belong here? Yeah, it took a long time. It probably took me a year um, until I really felt like I belonged there. Um, going to Gainesville, Florida from Nepean, Ontario was a massive culture shock. Not just the football, the way people dressed, how people spoke, the accents, the foods. In my mind, I'm going down to Florida and I'm thinking Miami. Like I'm thinking drop top convertibles and palm trees and people like, you know, rollerblading. Gainesville, Florida is the deep south. Aside from all of that, the level of football was just so much different. I was playing with with future first round picks and NFL superstars. It was a level that I never could have even fathomed. And it wasn't until probably our bowl game a year later. I got there in January of 97. We played Joe Paterno in Penn State in the Citrus Bowl uh, in January 1st, 98. And I threw a touchdown pass late in that game. And that was probably the, the moment where I said to myself, okay, I've been here long enough. I get this. I believe I'm good enough to play here. I love this culture and I, I'm making a lot of friends and, and I love school and everything's happening. I'm far away from home, but I can be here and I can do this. Was your dad there to see that touchdown pass? He was, yeah. Just knowing your family, you've got two people out of 85,000 that are your blood, that are cheering for you and rooting you on, really, really made a big difference for me. And I was really lucky to have him there. 33,755 passing yards, but you also find a way to get two undergraduate degrees, a Bachelor of Arts poli-sci and a Bachelor of Science in Marketing. How did you find time to do all of that and enjoy the deep south and all that comes with college life? You know, a lot of it, I think, goes back to what we were talking earlier about with my mom and understanding how to sort of prioritize and, and really sort of map out the day and, and make sure that you're doing all the things you need to do. One of the advantages of growing up in Canada and having the 13th grade, having an OAC year in Ontario in high school, was that it translated to college credits when I got to Florida. So the fact that I was also speaking French and bilingual also gave me extra credits. So I, I got my degree in marketing with a minor in education in a year and a half. And so I walked into the, my guidance counselor's office saying, hey, I got this degree. I've got it in a year and a half. Let's go for another degree. And he looked at me and he said, why don't you just focus on football? And I said, yeah, but it's like free education. It's, it's a scholarship. You know, I, I might as well make, make use of this. And he said, yeah, but, you know, we're playing Georgia next year and we got Florida State on the road and Tennessee's coming in. There's going to be some big games. If you why don't we just take a bunch of elective classes? You'll get straight A's, you'll get a 4.0 GPA, and then you'll be, you could be like a, an academic All-American and then just focus on football. And, and I had to convince my guidance counselor to put me in a different major to make use of the time. So he said, well, what do you want to do? 
I said there's this anti-terrorism political science class that looks kind of interesting, and I'd be curious just to take it and see. So I took it as an elective, loved it, came back and, and told them after that I wanted to, to major in, in poli-sci. The Fergie Ferguson Award, it's you know one of the team captains, now it's your senior year. It's awarded to the person that displays outstanding leadership, character, and courage. Did winning that award change the way you saw yourself? I was really honored to get that award because it didn't have anything to do with how you were playing. It spoke to, I think, how others saw me off the field. And it really meant a lot to me because I took a lot of pride being a leader on that team and being a captain and doing the things that nobody ever saw. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Defense, but if you're Jesse Palmer, you're back that far, especially against Mississippi State. You got to know where you are. Get rid of the football. Welcome to the 2001 NFL College Player Draft. My guest today is a multi-talented Jesse Palmer who can offer some incredible insights in making the most of the moment and setting yourself up for future moments. Jesse, your fourth-round draft pick of the New York Giants, 125th pick overall. What's going through your mind during draft day? It's the culmination of, uh, of a childhood dream. I, I grew up in, in Nepean. Um, I knew when I was seven years old that I wanted to play football in the NFL. Uh, I knew it from a very early age, and there was no plan B. I grew up in a, a small bedroom. I had 14 posters of NFL quarterbacks in my bedroom. I had a massive collage of Joe Montana, who I actually hated back then because he was always beating my Chicago Bears. But still, I knew he, you had to respect how good he was. So I, I didn't have any more space on my wall, so I put it on my ceiling. And I would just stare at this before I go to bed. When I'd wake up, I, I'd hang out in my room. I'd throw the ball to myself, diving catches on the bed. On draft day, thinking about the journey, I think, of mosquito football Nepean Ontario playing for the Nepean Rams my helmet was way too big this giant face mask with a bar down the middle that no quarterback should ever wear all the way through high school through the Florida Gators through the senior bowl through the, the NFL combine through through pro day workouts the highs and lows that day was more about reflecting and I think it was more about being grateful to the people that helped me get there obviously I never would have achieved it by myself so my family my coaches uh, my teachers in school uh, my teammates my friends my my trainers and being so grateful to get the phone call from our general manager Ernie Acorsi saying you know how do you feel I said I feel pretty good he said, well, you should because we just drafted you. And it, it, it was just this amazing moment. My, you know, I was with my mom and dad in, in their home in Orlando. My girlfriend at the time was there. My brothers were there. Mom and dad are wearing my jerseys and they had kind of put pictures up all over the room. It, it, I, I can't describe the feeling. It was just so surreal. Tony, I'm so lucky in life. Um, I don't know how many people in the world get to do what they dreamed of doing. I had one dream. And it was to play quarterback in the NFL. And, and a lot of people thought it was impossible. I have no regrets in life. Like today I wake up, I got to live my dream. Everything now is just icing on the cake. It really is. Like I, I feel so lucky to have gotten to do that. Just curious because your parents are both in the room. Your brothers are there. Obviously, everybody's excited. But how about your mom? I mean, it's a dangerous sport and she's your mom. I mean, I know this is your dream and everything you want. How do you think she was feeling that day knowing because the hits 
coming at you in the NFL. <laughs> I mean, I mean <laughs> they're see, they I mean, hurt. Yeah, she she would always tell me like the three and a half hours on game day was a very stressful day. That that was like a window of time for her. I mean, my mom knew how important it was and how much it meant to me. And of course, she's a mom. And so she's always going to be worried about her kids out there running around and getting tackled. But like, I have these great memories of my mom. I remember when I was trying to decide where I was going to go to university, um, my mom took me on a long walk in our neighborhood in Ottawa. And we were going through this park. It was called Country Place Park. Never forget it. I'm telling my mom, I said, you know, we're getting these scholarship offers from smaller schools where I know I can play a lot sooner. Florida's going to be tough. There's a lot of NFL players there. Uh, they just want, they're, they're, they're in the process of winning a national championship. All the best quarterbacks in high school want to go there. And if I go there, it's not going to be easy. What do you think I should do? And she told me, she said, you have to go to Florida because you have to challenge yourself. You have to find out how good you can be. Take the road that, that may be a little bit more perilous and, and believe in yourself. I think back to these phone calls when things weren't going great at Florida. It was always my mom. You know, you talk to your dad and you kind of get the dad advice and the football advice. But then I needed mom. I needed mom to really sort of like get me recentered and refocused. So, you know, I think when I got drafted and she saw that, she saw that moment, I know she was really excited. And she was, she was probably more worried about me getting drafted to New York City than she was the fact that I was going to get tackled because <laughs> I'd never been to a city like that. I mean, I love Toronto. I was born there. I grew up there. And that to me was the big city. Going to New York City was a completely different animal. So it was, uh, it, it was just a wild day. A, getting drafted in the NFL, but B, what are the chances, right? That's one of the, that's one of the ultimate moments in my life, a crossroad where the decision is completely out of your hands. You're getting selected. You're not choosing the University of Florida. The New York Giants are choosing you. And now that's where you're going to go live and your life's going to take off from there and go whichever way it goes. So, I mean, one of the best things that ever happened to me, no doubt, was getting drafted by the Giants. So it's a tough gauntlet. I mean, getting drafted, but we know that that's, and that alone is an accomplishment. You could say, you know what, my dream came true. I got drafted. But you actually become the second Canadian ever to start a game in the NFL. Tell my listeners what it took for you to go from being that day with your parents and your brothers saying, this is fantastic, they've selected me, to actually getting the game ball. It's funny. It's like people always say, you know, you get drafted and then the work starts and then the journey really begins, I mean, you th- which, is, which is overwhelming when you're a rookie because you're thinking, God, man, since I was seven years old, I've put whatever, 15 years of hard work just to get to this point. I've made it. You haven't made it. Now you get to the New York Giants and now, you know, Kerry Collins, Tiki Barber, Jesse Armstead, you know, I'm playing for a team that just played in the Super Bowl in in the largest sports media market in the world. It, It was just another, that took another three years of hard work, of having to improve and get better, but also mature. Because the NFL now was, was you know, it's it's never felt like a job to me because I love the sport so much. But it wasn't like college football where it was like, go to class and then, you know, work out. And then you got meetings at three o'clock, you practice till six, and then you're done. This was your quarterback. You're going to be there at 7 a.m. watching film. And you're not leaving until 6 p.m., 7 p.m. It's a 12-hour job. How do you go from walking in as a form, you know, the team captain, winning this award to sort of that rookie status? Because I have to believe that you have to really earn your place on a team. 
And this is one of the toughest teams to earn that role. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's kind of, it's like you said, you got to earn your role. You have to earn your respect in the locker room as well and foster all these brand new relationships. You know, I, I, I'm lucky because I've always really enjoyed people and I like talking to people. I love asking questions and, and, you know, I love taking the piss out of people and, and like in doing all those things. So we had a great locker room first off. So we had a lot of great guys in there. But it became very apparent very quickly, too, that just because you get drafted is no guarantee you're going to make the team. We had another fourth round pick, a guy that actually had gotten drafted ahead of me on the Giants who got cut in training camp. And so, I mean, I knew that I couldn't rest on my laurels and I had to go out and prove myself every single day. It was a whole new set of coaches. It was a team that obviously had a very high standard. Having just played in the Super Bowl, there were superstar uh, celebrities in, in our locker room. And it was an opportunity for me to go in and really try to continue the climb and, and prove myself like, like I had been doing my whole life. You know, you talk about, you know, when you're playing for the Gators, the, the you hit that touchdown pass in the ball. Was there one play that really stands out for you in the NFL that you just sort of smile at when you think about it? Yeah. We, so my first start, it was against the New Orleans Saints. It was on national TV, Sunday night football. And uh, Joe Theismann and, and these guys were in the booth calling the game. And early in the game, so we're in the Superdome in New Orleans. And if anyone's ever been in the Superdome, it's crazy loud. It's this huge dome. It's cr- it's really, really hostile. And early in the game, we call the trick play. It was a, a pitch to Tiki Barber. He handed it off to Amani Toomer on a reverse. And then he pitched it back to me. So it was like a double reverse flea flicker. <laughs> And then we had David Tyree running down the middle of the field on a post route. He wasn't open. Tiki Barber was running down the sideline on a wheel. And I got the reverse from Amani and threw like a 45-yard completion to Tiki down the sideline. It's like a play that I was running back when I was like eight years old at Maryville, <laughs> at Mar- like at Maryville Elementary School. Yeah, it yeah. was like Maryville Public School recess. <laughs> you know, you're, you're out there with your buddies and you're like flipping it to each other behind the head and someone catches it and throws it. We ran that play against the New Orleans Saints and it worked. And it was my first start. It was like the craziest thing. What did they say in the booth? You must have listened to the tape afterwards. Oh, that's a great call. Wow. You know, they've been working on that all week long. You know, they found something on film that really gave them that opportunity to work that out. I remember in the game, I was like, we we complete the throw and I'm jogging down the field. And I'm like, I cannot believe that just worked. (laughs) It was unbelievable. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. When we return, Jesse Palmer trades the football for a rose, becoming the fourth bachelor in the acclaimed reality show and the first professional athlete to play that part. I think when you go on a a reality dating show, it really forces you to lower your guard and become revealing and be honest and open and do it with a bunch of strangers and do it in front of a live audience. And then, of course, a nationally TV audience watching at home. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout-out to First Up with RBCX Music that promotes emerging Canadian artists. They provide a platform for these artists to perform, to find new fans through media exposure, and access industry experts and mentors. RBC is enabling Canadian talent to continue to hone their craft, progress their careers, and follow their passions. Supporting Canadian artists matters to RBC. My biggest advice to people is, is to try their best to be their most authentic selves, which is really hard to do, especially in this environment uh, where there's cameras. Being present is so important, but also, you know, allowing yourself to be vulnerable. 
and I come from locker room culture where it's sort of looked down upon to ever need help, ask for advice. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Jesse Palmer, professional athlete, broadcaster, television host, and so much more. So how does an NFL quarterback in the middle of your playing career become The Bachelor? The show was brand new at the time. Reality TV was brand new at the time. That was a whole new phenomena that we were, there was like the real world and all these shows. The Bachelor wanted a professional athlete to be The Bachelor. And I think they had interviewed a lot of different athletes from different sports. My football agent at the time, Peter Schaefer, had a relationship with Mike Fleiss, the creator of The Bachelor. And Peter calls me one day and says, hey, what do you think about this? And I said, I don't know. I got to talk to my parents about it. It sounds so foreign. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what's going on. He said, well, it's going to film in the off season when you're not playing. It just depends on if you want to do it. I spoke to mom and dad. I said, what do you think? And they said, you, should, you absolutely should do this. It just sounds like a cool opportunity. I've always, one of the biggest lessons I've, I think I've learned in life, Tony, is to not be so quick to say no to things and close the door because you just never know until you try something. I'm always somebody that, that has been open-minded. Um, I also don't take myself too seriously, as you well know. When the opportunity came, I said, yeah, why not? We'll try it. I was at a time in my life that I was, I was open to finding love. And if I had found, uh, if I had found my person on the show, great. But, I, you know, I was just going to go out and really try to enjoy it and have fun with it. And so Lynn, never knowing the doors that doing that show was going to open. So you talked earlier about how you like to take the piss out of some of the players. How did they treat you when they found out you're a VIA? It was like like nonstop PR all the time in the room because I had to keep explaining to everybody what the premise of the show was. And they were like, wait, you're going... You're going on dates with like 12 women at the same time. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, what's the point though? I'm like, well, to find a wife at the end. They're like, and you're handing flowers to them. Like, what are you? And so it was like preemptive damage control every day. You would have to constantly have all the guys over at my house and we'd be watching the show together. So you could deal with all the fire right away, like right there live in the moment. And then we'd go back to practice the next day and it was all squashed. It was like we were moving on. It was so much fun. We had we had watch parties in Times Square with all the guys. Uh, I ended up actually having a couple of teammates come like do interviews as part of the show. It was just like a big bonding experience for everybody on the team. But as you can imagine... The locker room, man, there's, there's no place in the world like it. And so you, like, I was going in, like, I was ready. What skills did you bring from the football field to the set? You're some of this to me, and I've seen you break out an impromptu song and dance numbers and fluently bilingual. And I go, where's all this coming from? It's like, like, how did you fuse it sort of football quarterbacking to being, on set. I think just just being comfortable in my own skin was the best thing. I mean, the, the Bachelor world is, especially early on, is very intimidating because a lot of us aren't used to having that many cameras. There, there are cameras in front of you. They're hidden behind walls. They're, they're shooting you from cameras on the ceilings. You're just constantly in front of the camera. I, I, I would say maybe playing football at a big university program like the Gators and then playing in New York City where every day there was a media scrum in our locker room and you were being interviewed with tons of cameras definitely helped me feel a lot more comfortable early on, maybe earlier than some others that have done the show. But I think for me, just being authentic and just being myself, I think was was the biggest key, just trying to feel comfortable. Earlier on, you said, you know, I had one dream, and that was to be a quarterback in the NFL. And I've lived that dream. But as you're on that set, do you start beginning to realize that 
there's other dreams out there for you? Or was it just, I'm going to do this off season and get back to playing football? It was really, I'm just going to get this thing finished and I got to get back to football. I had no intentions. I had no understanding of hosting because in, in the role as the bachelor, I'm not, I'm not hosting. I'm just, I'm supposed to be, be myself. I'm just being Jesse and I'm interacting with these women in front of cameras and I'm, I'm trying to put my walls down the best I can. I'm trying to be as vulnerable as I can. When that got finished, I, I went right back, right back into football. For me, it was really just kind of like the, this, this cool thing I did in an off season that was going to be a really neat experience. But what, what I learned later was, was that I really enjoyed being on camera and I, and I, I felt like I could be myself and I could be comfortable. And so when I got opportunities down the road to broadcast football games or try an opportunity like what we had with Recipe to Riches in Canada for two seasons on Food Network Canada, I thought, hey, you know, maybe this is something I want to give a give a shot, try out, see if I see if I'm comfortable at doing it, see if I'm okay at doing it, if people believe in believe in me. Those were all things I would discover years down the road after doing the show. When did you start setting up the next career for you? Because we all know that the, the shelf life of a professional athlete, certainly one in the NFL, is very finite, very limited. So, so when did you start setting up that chessboard that said life after football? It started while I was still playing on the New York Giants in the offseason. There was an arena football league and Jason Garrett, who was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys, he was, he was our backup quarterback. He was our third string quarterback. And uh, he was doing this radio broadcasting for them. And, and he was leaving and he said, hey, you should try this and just see if you like doing it in the offseason. And I did. And I really, really enjoyed it. Later, later on, once, once I retired from football and started broadcasting uh, NFL games for Fox and then started my work at ESPN, in the offseasons, I, I, I would be at my home in Montreal and my mom would call me and she'd say, uh, so what are you going to do? Uh, in the off season. And I, I'm like, well, I'll just be in Montreal and I'll enjoy and I'll travel. And she said, hey, this is a time in your career that you need to really hit hit it. Like you need to start opening your, your spectrum and your horizons and start trying other things and other shows. Because, you know, you can't put all of your eggs in one basket in football. You should try to diversify. That, that really kind of struck a chord with me. And so when we got the opportunity to, to do the food show that you and I worked on, the Recipe to Riches, I tried that. And it was just a great way to supplement my off season. And it was a totally different experience than football. And it was helping me broaden my horizon. So it went from, you know, I started looking for more opportunities. Okay, I'm always going to do football. I know that between August and January or early February, it'll be football. But then what can I do? Let's try food. Let's do, you know, that led to Good Morning America. Let's do Daily Mail TV. Let's do uh, holiday Christmas specials for Disney. Jesse, you're just rolling off like Good Morning America. You know, and these are major platforms. Let's try is one thing, but how did how did you end up, for example? Because I know that even you were a serious consideration to quarterback that show. How did that come about? I mean, I know your mom's saying plant some seeds, but they, those the trees grow pretty quickly. I think it was an, an accumulation of... You know, having done football and GMA had had invited me on to talk about uh, the Tom Brady scandal deflate gate. Everybody remembers that. Yeah. And so I was on a couple times talking about my experiences and just sort of my opinion on what was happening with deflate gate. But, you know, I, I think because of my background on The Bachelor and I had hosted a couple shows, uh, Holiday Baking Championship, Spring Baking Championship here in the States on Food Network. 
I had gotten in front of a different audience than just the football audience. And I'd gotten in front of an audience that GMA viewers were, were familiar with. That, that it, it was them. It was this interesting kind of cross-pollination. And they reached out to me and said, hey, how would you feel about coming on and talking about something not football? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. Like, what are your pa- what are you passionate about? I would do, you know, whether it was food or travel um, and all these different things. And so I, I was living in New York City and I would just keep kind of going back on the show. And then we finally got an offer to, to be on the show full time. That experience at GMA was was one of the most fun things I've ever done. The, the, the couple of years I was there, it was just tremendous. And again, it, I got to learn a whole new skill set doing that show, live TV, introing and teasing tape segments. It was a whole new skill set I learned that helped sort of build build me up to, to be a better host down the road. So I want to talk about The Bachelor. It's one of the most successful franchises on television. And if you're in this world, having a franchise, having something that you anchor your career to is very important. But you're stepping in to replace Chris Harrison. How did they come about and how do you step into someone's shoes, but in a way that becomes your shoes. You know, it, there was a time about a year ago, obviously, or a year and a half ago, where there, there was an opening for that host role. I had hosted a show for Mike Fleiss, the creator of The Bachelor, called The Proposal a couple of years ago. It was sort of a spin-off show of The Bachelor. Mike sort of, you know, knew that I I had the chops to do it. But when, when that opening came up, we had had conversations with Rob Mills at ABC, with Mike Fleiss, obviously, and and it was something that I that I really really thought I, I could do, and I really was passionate about doing and taking over. We had those conversations, decided we were going to give it a go. It's been an amazing year. It really has hosting the Bachelor, the Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise. The thing I'm just trying to do more than anything else, Tony, is I'm just trying to be myself, and I'm not trying to be anybody else. So what does that mean? Like what is like who is Jesse hosting this show? I try to be as empathetic as I possibly can. I try not to make it about myself and I just try to listen. And and I'm just putting my own stamp on it the best the best way I know how because I'm just being authentic to me. So if somebody gives you the game ball on this franchise and they certainly want to keep it going and growing, do they kind of try to nudge you in a corner saying, yeah, that's great, Jesse, but this is how the show works? Or do they give you the freedom to actually be who you are and to try to take it to a complete, maybe even find a completely new audience. For yeah, them. it's they've been great. Uh, in the year I've been there, they've been phenomenal in just giving me my own voice and letting me letting me do it the best I can as myself. Bachelor, you know, Bachelor Nation. People that watch the show know there's a formula to the show, and so we follow that. But I'm allowed to be me, and I'm allowed to have my own voice, and they give me the space to do that. And I think over time. I think that's going to become, hopefully that's going to become more comfortable for our viewers and, and more um, familiar to our viewers who are watching as time goes on. When we come back, we learn what's next for Jesse Palmer. I share my three lessons learned. And then Sasha Braganza joins the show to share some breaking news about RBCX music. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Jesse is hosting, of course, the new season of Bachelor in Paradise, which is a little ironic because he's no longer a bachelor. That's right. <laughs> it took a while. Emily was just radiant. It was so emotional. I was crying my eyes out the entire time. She was she was absolutely um, just a goddess. My guest today is Jesse Palmer, former NFL player, commentator, TV personality, and now the host of the Bachelor franchise. You know, I've followed you on Instagram and you're 
you know, often 10,000 calorie lunches and that you put out there and these things that I don't even know how you can stand, let alone go on a permanent food coma, but you managed to do. But then I started seeing two new people become very part of your Instagram, Lulu, your dog, and obviously uh, Emily Fardo, who you uh, proposed to and are now married to. So how's life changed for you knowing that it's, it's, it's no longer... It's very, it's very different from when we were hanging out back back in Toronto, back in the day. I know. Uh, it, it, man, it just, it's just, it's funny how it happens. I, uh, I met Emily at a boxing class in New York City one morning. It was very organic. We ended up connecting later. Our first date was a boxing class and a protein shake at about noon. It was very unthreatening. Uh, and then she slow played me for a long time. And then finally, just like, you know, it's like a quarterback. You got to just keep taking shots. You keep keep throwing it deep. You know, you're going to hit one of them. And, and, and eventually, you know, I finally broke through Emily's defense. And, and I, I've been so lucky to, to, to find her. She's just this person that I really feel kind of completes me. She gives me so much peace. I don't know if that makes any sense. I just feel like I can be myself. I'm not ever being judged by her. You know, it's hard sometimes. And you, you probably experience this too is with your jobs and you, you know, you having this, this successful platform. Um, you have to be on a lot. And I feel like sometimes with my jobs, I, I do too. And it's nice to be able to come back to an environment and be with someone that you can just completely decompress and be yourself. And she gives me the space and the freedom in order to, to do that and, li- and really just be me. I'm eternally grateful to her for that. And then we got a, you know, COVID happened and we needed another organism in the house. So we went out and found Lulu. She was flown to us from Utah. We went to JFK airport and this woman walks out of the airport with a bag and just drops it on the ground. And she's like, all right, and turns around and leaves. This little fuzzy head pops up out of it. And, and for the last two years, we've had this little, uh, this, this little, <laughs> this little beast running around our house. So, dude, this more domesticated, slower life for me has just been so fantastic. Going, I never thought I would enjoy going to sleep at like 10 p.m., 9.45. I didn't even know what that was for a very long time. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it's, been, it's been amazing. And so, you know, hopefully we can start growing this family here pretty soon and start having children and... I get to experience a whole new chapter. I want to end the show by saying, you know, 25 years ago, you're a kid trying to make a college football team. We've just heard dream upon dream and some incredible testament to who you are and how you how you just love the life you're living right now. What's next for you? Because you're such a young guy. You said earlier, well, football is always going to be my priority from here. And then off season's that. But I have to believe there's so many doors opening up. What advice can you give to people to choose the doors that make you happiest? Just don't be so quick to say no to things. Um, I know there have been so many times in my career where an opportunity came up. And my initial gut reaction was, oh, I'm going to hate that. I'm never going to want to do that. I, I don't even know anything about that. How can I talk about that on TV and be and be believable, be credible? The schedule is too hard. It's too much travel. I'm, I'm going to hate it. Sometimes you have to step out of your comfort zone and you have to embrace the unknown. And you got to find out about yourself. I never thought I would like doing Food Network shows until I did Recipe to Riches with you. And then I loved it. And so I've been doing it ever since. Um, it, it's, it's helped me say yes to daunting opportunities. I got nervous when Good Morning America offered me a job because I thought, I, I just don't think I'm ready. It's too big of an audience. If I fail, what then happens to my career? But, you know, belief in yourself, surrounding yourself with people who believe in you that are constantly uplifting you, and then saying yes to things. 
Because when you say yes, it just opens up so many more doors that you never, ever thought would ever even become available to you. You know, Jesse, I always end my show with my three takeaways. And the first one is one that has come through first from your dad saying this to you and how you believe it. Don't be so quick to say no. Open your mind to possibilities. The second one, obviously, is just who you've become. You were Jesse Palmer. The spotlight shone on you, and now you've become so gracious and talking about your dog and talking about your wife and everybody around you and words like fortunate and lucky. And it's just great to see how you're at peace with who you are and the role you play versus always having to be the starring role. But the third thing and the most important thing, and I thought this is going to be more First of all, how much your parents mean to you and, and obviously the shoulders that your dad carried you on. But I love what you talk the way you talk about your mom. The walk in the pian where she says, no, you got to go to Florida. You got to go to the Gators. You got to stretch yourself. The phone call in Montreal where she says, what are you doing in your off season? You're saying, I just worked hard. I got money. I travel. I'm in Montreal. Have you ever seen Montreal in the summer? I mean, <laughs> and she's saying, no, this is the time. It's just wonderful that you have your parents in your corner. And I think it's an incredible lesson for all the parents out there. You know, pull the screens away, invest in time, make the kids' dreams possible by just believing in them. So for all of that and more, my friend, it's just been absolutely a combination of goosebumps, chills, and happiness that I've had you on the show today. It's great seeing you again, man. And I mean this. I was really lucky. I'm lucky to have gotten to meet you, someone who's obviously crazy successful, but also so down to earth and friendly. You were always so endearing. Uh, and you were, I always remember you giving me advice on professional things and on personal things as well. I'm really lucky to have, to have, to have you in my life and to have met you as well. You, you made a big impact on me, so thank you. Joining me now is someone that's been on the show before. She's one of my favorite people because she's got incredible, infectious energy. Sasha Braganza, Senior Manager, Brand Marketing at RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me, Tony. Great to be back. So Jesse Palmer's a classic tale of putting himself in the right place at the right time with the right effort and attitude and having the support of people who believe in him. But even with all of that working in his favor... It's really, there's no guarantees. It's fair to say that there's so many people with artistic and athletic dreams, but they're chasing too few opportunities. Is that fair? You've heard that with Jesse. I think you'd find that with so many athletes. And from what I have seen and experienced with emerging artists, I wouldn't say they're chasing too few opportunities. In fact, I would say they have just such an infectious sense of hustle that we get to see that is um, just truly something to behold. And I think that it really comes down to who is willing to step up to the plate and, and offer up opportunities to give them the exposure they deserve and the shine that spotlight on, on, on such amazing talent and stories and voices. So I teased the audience earlier that you have breaking news. I think it's time now that you, uh, you share it with us. We are so happy at RBCX Music. Um, we created the first step with RBCX Music program, and it was really built on the belief that a career in the music industry should be accessible to every artist who is talented, passionate, and has that drive to succeed. 
Um, and since launching in 2020, we've supported a ton of artists. Last year, we provided 121 performance opportunities across 64 events, coast to coast, put back, you know, over $500,000 back in direct funding to emerging artists. And this year, we're just really excited to relaunch that program for year four. Applications are officially opening on March 6th and emerging artists all across Canada have until March 19th to apply to the program. And we are just so thrilled to be able to bring it back, offer a ton more exclusive opportunities to, you know, selected featured artists, as well as artists who have already been through the program in this last, uh, in these last few years. If I was an artist, where would I find the best way to apply? Follow us on Instagram at RBCX Music, and there will be up-to-date information there. You can also go to rbc.com slash RBCX Music first up, uh, and you can actually sign up right there for a notification reminder so that you are the first to know as soon as that application window opens. With AWOL and Live Nation, we will be taking a look at applications and selecting uh, up to 20 artists for, for 2023 to, to get after what is going to be a really exciting year of programming. You're so excited about some of the stories of people that have really taken advantage of your program. And because of that, you know, they found the audience that their talents deserve. Share one of those stories with us. There's so many and I almost don't want to steal their spotlight, but artists who performed at major festivals um, who had never performed in front of a live audience before. Artists who started making music only during the pandemic as a pastime and now have, through our program, been able to, to hit the stages of TIFF and uh, open for, for major bands. Um, we had you know, a TIFF event not too long ago at RBC House and um, artists Ari Hicks and Jive from the program were able to open for Wallows. Last year at Canadian Open, we had multiple opportunities. Zensol, Ari, um, Pisces, all being able to perform even more than, than the names they were able to put their own names beside. Uh, it's the stories of the confidence that we've heard that's built up. You know, artists that have come to tell us that this program funded all of the music that they made this past year. How does it feel to sit in the audience knowing that somebody that might have started as a you know something to get through COVID playing in front of a live audience. You must feel like they're feeling on stage, they're shining eyes, their heart beating, the excitement. It must be just magical for you. It's surreal, it's heartwarming, it gives you all the good feels. You can never complain about that. By no means do we take full credit here. This is their talent, this is their voice, but to have been able to know that our program has played a part in this is incredibly inspiring. Sasha Braganza, RBCX, first up, and you're always first up with me when I do stories about talent. Thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Thanks so much, Tony. Appreciate it. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.